Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Muslim Vibe podcast. My name is Afra Mansour and I am the deputy editor of the Muslim Vibe. Today I am joined by Salim Qasim, the chief editor of the Muslim Vibe, and Sheikh Dawood Walid, the executive director of the Michigan chapter of the Council of American Islamic Relations. This podcast will be discussing the intersection between Islam and race, Arab privilege and problems within our community, and quite importantly, Islam in America under Trump. During the recording of this podcast, we face some audio issues. This is what you missed out on. We asked him about the Twitter campaign, dropping the A-word. The A-word is the phrase Abid, a term in Arabic which means slave and is often used by Arabs to describe people of colour. He describes the responses he received on Twitter and his understanding of prophetic teachings in which we are instructed not to use such terminology and to realise that the best of us are the best in piety and not by status or race or anything in between. You can pick up now where Salim asks him about the responses to the campaign. Sorry, can I ask, what was the, the response to, to this on Twitter? Uh, well, when I responded back to people with an article for the Arab American News, I was tweeting back at people and I got three responses. The first response was, Wesley, there was three uh, things that, that happened was I uh, tweeted the first was no response at all. The second was, oh, I didn't know uh, what that uh, word really meant. It just be, is this what people say in my family back in Lebanon or Syria for black people? Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then they would say, oh, but, you know, we're all slaves of God, though. And I said, but yeah, but you don't call your family members in Lebanon. You don't call them or people in your village from Vintage Bale or uh, from the Muqawama, you don't call them Marbid, right? So it's not uh, sincere. Uh, then the third response that I got was actually hostility where people called me uh, Abda or even started calling me the N-word and accused me, which is a, a typical a response from racists. They start blaming me for the racial problems and say, if I didn't bring any awareness to this, then it wouldn't be a problem. But because I was talking about the problem, Therefore, I'm the real the problem. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's pretty worrying. And and I mean, would you say that there is uh, an Arab privilege that kind of does run through our community? Well, there's an Arab privilege, I believe, that that runs in, uh, in the Muslim American community in particular. And I will also be more specific in saying Arab American privilege uh, with people with lighter skin because even in my area in Dearborn, Michigan, there is a type of de facto uh, light skin Arab privilege yeah. where not only are people seen to be more authoritative in religion, but then the whole thing about uh, beauty, about how you know, in our community, Lebanese and Syrian women are pretty to be more beautiful than Iraqi women from southern Iraq or Yemeni. Or, or, or Sudanese uh, Muslims, so it, it, it's, a re it's a reality, for sure. I mean, you've highlighted two issues here. You have racism and then just how it's, how it's seen in our communities. Now, um, just if we can you know, think back to one of the articles that you did write for us, and of course we will link it, inshallah, in the description. Um, one of the things you talked about was racism within the institution of marriage itself. Um, could you tell us a bit more about your experience maybe? Because, I mean, obviously this is a problem here as well. By no means am I saying it's different. But you're talking about your community. So could you tell us a bit more about your community? Maybe what kind of issues you've faced with that? 
Well, it's, it's racism, tribalism, and colorism all rolled into one very uh, iblis type of influenced uh, mentality amongst many Muslims, unfortunately. So you have the issue of one of lack of, cult, of acculturation. So you have Muslims who immigrate here and uh, carry some of their cultural tribal baggage from home and bring it to America. So you have the issue of uh, people wanting their children to marry someone from the same village that they came from, even though the child never lived in that village. And even if, uh, and even, even if the, 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 the young man or young woman that they want them to marry the same village here, uh, the, the primary standard in many cases is not religiosity or, or, or deen, uh, to the point that I've dealt with issues or heard issues where people from one country from Lebanon or Palestine don't want their child to marry someone from another village back home, even though the, the, the male and the female both were born in America and have never lived over there. Uh, that's on one level. The other level is in terms of the colorism issue where, uh, where mothers don't want their sons to marry a woman who they think is not pretty enough or quote-unquote fair enough, which is really uh, uh, baffling the type of uh, assignment of beauty that's put on lighter skin. And then even the usage of the word fair, like fair meaning good or pretty, so like is, is darker skin unfair? Like mm. is it intrinsically mm. bad? Yes. Uh, that happens a lot in our community as well. So that could even be like South Asian on South Asian type of, uh, of discrimination where a, Can a, fair, I? a lighter skin Cindy will discriminate against someone who's Punjabi, okay? Yeah. And a lot of that is based upon. Then you have the broader issue of, 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 of race where, and this goes back to the Arab privilege about how there are cases where, uh, and it's happened to me, by the way, uh, personally, where someone's like, oh, mashallah, uh, the person's a, he's a good guy, he studied dean, he's very uh, intelligent, but for somehow or another, because he's not from us and he's not Arab, that somehow he's not good enough for, uh, for our daughter. So that happens, uh, and not just to Muslims who are African-American descent. I've, I've had uh, three uh, white American Muslim friends who are, uh, who are converts. Uh, one of them was turned down for marriage. The other went through uh, the ringer to marry their wives and... Uh, you know, the, the families like grudgingly gave in after like a three year jihad in one case and a five year jihad is to get uh, married. Um, and these were very like well-mannered, very qualified uh, men who were, you know, hassled just because they were not out. Can I ask that the first point you mentioned was about um, people from you know, different tribes back home coming to America and that tribalism getting in the way. But we're always told that, you know, our culture does have a special place. And when we come here, we can't just fully kind of assimilate and, and give up our values from back home or whatever else. So how do we reconcile the two? How, how do you reconcile being a British or an American Muslim who has a heritage which has X, Y, Z and, and a culture that has X, Y, Z and food and whatever else with the, the notions of, of, you know, not being discriminatory and racist towards other people from within your culture and, and also externally? Well, th there is a balance, and we've been told about this through, by the Prophet and the Imams, alayhi uh, in terms of this balance. So, 
Uh, culture uh, is very important. We have a hadith that relates to this that says, is it from asabiyya or blameworthy tribalism that a person loves his people? And the response is no, it's not from al-asabiyya, but asabiyya is it is that you help your people in wrongdoing or oppression that's uh, blameworthy. So loving our people and loving our culture is good, but the problem comes in is that when someone looks down at someone, another person, and blocks them from marriage simply because they come from a different tribe or a different ethnic group, that actually goes against uh, the prophetic example of the pious companions in Ahlul Bayt, and we can look at several marriages of Bilal, who was married to an Arab woman, to Salman, the Persian, who was married to an Arab woman, to even uh, some of the, uh, the Imams. Uh, Imam Jafar al-Sadiq was married to an, an African woman. Imam Ali al-Rida was married to an African woman. So uh, if someone is, is claims to be a lover of Ahlul Bayt and they have an Arab son, and they turn their son away from marrying an African woman, then, you know, I, that really makes me question who they're following. <laughs> well, um, so you've mentioned that structural issues just don't fix themselves on their own. There is an inherent issue, and we're aware of it now. Well, hopefully, we're hoping to build on that. But um, what can we do? What is it that we can do to, you know, educate maybe the elder generations or educate the people around us about this issue? Well, the first thing is like discussion. So if someone's in a 12-step program like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous trying to get help for substance abuse, in the early steps, the first thing is is to admit that one has a problem. So uh, I think this is the hardest hurdle is for people to understand that like we do have a problem of our community regarding tribalism, and it is something that is not only systemic, but it plays itself out in subtle ways and covert ways. It's not primarily just uh, name-calling. It's, uh, it's uh, who's in the leadership of our institutions, uh, who can be on the board of a Marquez or not. Is that based in ethnicity? Uh, after there's two or three generations of Muslims in America or even in Britain, um, is, is, it, is it specific having the lecture only in one language, uh, not just to appeal to one particular group, but even being exclusionary, right, uh, in a sense. So some of this stuff needs to be uh, talked to. That's the first step. But I would say that the, the other step is uh, intentional suhbah. And I use this term uh, in intentional in front of suhbah for a reason, because we have Islamic conferences and we have our different Islamic centers, so we may pray together, and it may be the the Arab and the Persian, South Asian, African praying together, or one musalla. But then after the prayer, uh, where's the socialization? Who's getting invited to who's walima? Who's getting invited to who's iftar? Uh, who's going to play football uh, t t together? Like, what is, what is the socialization really looking like amongst the Muslims? And that needs to be done uh, intentionally, just as the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had intentional suhbah with his non-Arab companions and also paired off people who were from Quraysh with people who weren't Quraysh for brotherhood and sisterhood compact. And the third thing is, I would say, really concentrating on the on the youth. Uh, one of Amir al-Mu'mineen's uh, students, Al-Hassan al-Basri, rahimahullah, he has a famous saying that uh, teaching uh, a young person 
is like etching in the stone, but trying to teach an older person is like writing on the face of the water. So I think the primary effort should be on on the youth that are coming up in in elementary schools and uh, the the high schools up into college to try to cultivate this feeling of brotherhood and sisterhood and to cultivate these relationships of intentional suhba. Um, it's good to talk to our elders as, as well, but uh, I would not spend uh, too much time or attention trying to uh, convince people who are set in certain socialization patterns in their 50s, 60s, and 70s to try to change their socialization patterns. I, I, I don't think that's the best usage of time, though those people still can be uh, you know, appealed to, but that, that, I don't think that's where the primary energy should go. It should be amongst the youth. And just quickly, even though we're not actually talking about sectarianism uh, on this podcast, I just wanted to get your thoughts because you're talking about tribalism a lot and how we stick to our own. Now, is there an overlap with sectarianism? Is, that, you know, is there a link there? Does sectarianism cement our tribalistic ways? And how do we reconcile all of those things? But briefly, because we, we, there is a lot more we want to talk about um, and, and time is, is running out. So, yeah, just sectarianism and, and tribalism. Um, perhaps sectarianism can compound it, but what I've seen is that there is racism amongst people who follow Madhab Jafari, and there's racism people who follow Madhab Maliki and, and Zaidi and Shafi'i and Ibadi. It's these types of structures that we have and behaviors as far as Islam uh, in America. They uh, stretch across different Madhab, different Tariqah, and it's something that is... Um, it's 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 a universal problem, but in terms of, I will say that uh, I have uh, seen the, the the trend amongst some Sunnis to uh, when they talk about uh, Shia, there's a level of race involved in terms of basically saying that Shia are really uh, Persianized, and they will use the term uh, Persian or even refer to Shia as, as Majusi, which obviously is a faith tradition that came out of the Majus came out of uh, Persia or Iran, but uh, that that is deployed uh, sometimes. But overall, I see the issue of race transcending uh, a school of thought here in America. Well, I'm talking about schools in America and the institution of America itself. Now, we know that the Black Lives Matter movement has taken the world by storm, and it's, it's really important. So we wanted to get your thoughts on that. What are your thoughts on the Black Lives Matter movement, and where do Muslims fall in under that? Well, uh, I look at Black Lives Matter in two parts. First, there is the mantra of Black Lives Matter, which came about after the uh, murder of a uh, African-American teenager, uh, Trayvon Martin, uh, who was famously wearing a hoodie, walking to uh, a store to get some skittles and, a, and an iced tea. It was killed by George Zimmerman. So that was a, a mantra that basically was lifted up to say, um, you know, black lives matter doesn't mean that other lives don't matter or that all lives shouldn't matter. It is to say that in America, black lives have never mattered as much as, as white lives or even other lives in America, people of color have been valued more, except for the indigenous people. Uh, that's the, where the mentor phrase came about. Now, Black Lives Matter as a movement is a nonprofit organization that is funded and uh, has gone out uh, in the community to lift up 
uh, the issue of mass incarceration and brutality, uh, predominantly among Black Americans, so they uh, have been recently involved in some uh, struggles in the name of intersectionality. You know, Black Lives Matter leaders have gone to uh, occupied Palestine and drawn the comparisons between the militarization of Palestinian communities and the militarization of black communities in certain uh, urban areas, especially after what happened in Ferguson when Mike Brown was killed. Uh, black Lives Matter has also been recently involved in the Standing Rock protests regarding the systemic uh, oppression of Native Americans here or indigenous uh, Americans, uh, which is a, uh, a type of oppression that runs uh, parallel with anti-black oppression here in the United States of America. As far as Muslims, um, there are uh, Muslims that have been involved in street protests against police brutality uh, even before there was a Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, Malcolm X was involved in addressing uh, police brutality. Uh, Malcolm X helped win a, a, a landmark lawsuit against the New York Police Department back in the 60s uh, regarding, at the time, it was the largest uh, lawsuit in New York history when there was a Nation of Islam member who was brutally beat by the NYPD. And there have been Muslims that have been involved in the police accountability movement uh, before Malcolm X to this present time. So anytime there's Black Lives Matter protests, uh, amongst the African Americans, there will be some uh, African American Muslims that are involved in that. And there have been other Muslims who are non-black that have been uh, involved uh, in the protests somewhat as well and particularly uh, from South Asian background and, 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 and as well as Arab Americans. Can I just ask on, on that uh, matter, the, the thing is, the way I see it is that whilst the Black Lives Matter movement is important and it's great, is it not just reinforcing this like conversation around race and, and bringing race to the forefront constantly? Should we not look to get past that as a people? Should that not be the aim that when you look at a person, you don't look at them as black, white, brown, whatever else, you just see a person for what they are and, and judge them on merit. But by, you know, by calling something Black Lives Matter, does it not just bring us back to this whole narrative of you know, black people and white people and brown people? Like, should we not be looking to move past that as minorities in America, in the UK? Uh, no, that, well, I think in, in America in particular, and I will say this in the UK as, as well, but I can definitely speak on about from the American perspective is that Actually, the issues of race need to be talked about more uh, because uh, our country was established upon uh, the system of white supremacy, uh, anti-black racism and anti-indigenous racism, too, uh, have effects in every aspect of the American life from uh, household income with people with, with the same level of education, uh, life uh, access to health care, life expectancy rates, how police uh, uh, Fail certain communities and police certain communities, uh, mass incarceration, and every act of life, a race uh, plays a part. And, uh, you know, that we as a country in America still can't have an honest conversation about race is one of the reasons why we can't transcend our very uh, ugly history. So I actually think that it needs to be uh, talked about more, uh, not less. And as far as Britain, uh, I mean, the the British Empire uh, used white supremacy and, and anti-black racism as a part of it to colonialize a large part of the world and accumulate its wealth. And a lot of the attitudes that 
uh, affect themselves, you know, in, in British society and from groups like Britain First uh, have a very long history that go back a century. So trying to erase the problem of race uh, or racism, uh, I don't, or ignoring it, I don't think that's the, the solution. And then from a Quranic perspective, uh, Allah Azza wa Jal said, uh, and, fr- and from his signs, the differences from his signs are the differences between the, the day and night and your skin colors and your languages, right? And then Allah Azza wa Jal says he created us into different nations and tribes, uh, that you may get to know one another. So God gave us two eyes to see, we're not to be colorable, like we're supposed to interact with that we can see uh, our, our, common, our common humanity while uh, recognize the, uh, the very special parts that people uh, bring, the, the richness of their culture and national backgrounds. It's, it's something that gave us as human beings intentionally so that we may, you know, uh, to uh, I- I- enjoy this life and to further understand our, our purpose. This is part of his divine wisdom. Now, um, do you deal with things like this in your line of work? I mean, I know that you're the executive director of uh, the Michigan chapter of, of uh, CARE. So could you tell us a bit more about CARE, the Council on American-Islamic Relations? What do they do? Because, I mean, over here we, we're quite uh, ignorant about the work that you do. Okay, well, CARE is America's largest civil liberties and advocacy organization for American Muslims. and. I'm the executive director of the Michigan branch. We have 30 offices across the country, and we're headquartered in Washington, D.C. We are an organization that is uh, non-sectarian, and we really don't deal with issues inside the American Muslim community. Uh, We primarily deal with the issue of Islamophobia, where there is racism or bigotry uh, pointed at uh, the Muslim community, be it individual acts such as hate crimes, school bullying, workplace discrimination, or dealing with the uh, the policy things, so the policy matters, yeah. which uh, looks like we're maybe dealing with the the potential of President-elect Donald Trump trying to put forth a Muslim registry here in America. So that's what we do primarily do is care. My work on intra-Muslim, uh, anti, uh, on intra-Muslim uh, work, as far as anti-racism, that's something that is not really part of CARE's work. It's something I do outside of my uh, of my official capacity per se. Uh, from this campaign that uh, I started a little over three years ago, about drop the A word. There were a group of people who contacted me and were interested in the campaign. And those people were brought together, and then they started the uh, Muslim Anti-Racism Collaborative or Muslim Arc, which primarily works on these issues of racism inside the Muslim community. Uh, I was one of the initial advisors, advisory board, I'm no longer part of that organization officially, but I am a, uh, a supporter of what they're doing in terms of trying to uh, bring together the American Muslim community and to have uh, difficult conversations about race that are facilitated, as well as uh, bringing about the steps of how to bridge the gaps in our community. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Well, we can only wish you the best of success uh, with everything that you do. And thank you so much for joining us and this afternoon. Yep. Just quickly, for those of our listeners who don't um, actually know this, we have an advisory board on the Muslim vibe. Yep. And uh, Sheikh Dawood Walid has, has generously do- donated his time to us, I guess, over the last year plus, um, just monitoring what we're doing, advising us on issues 
contentious pieces when we don't know what to do or if we should publish something. So I just wanted to thank you on, on behalf of, of the Muslim vibe and, and hope you stick with us, keep writing for us as well. Um, and we wish you all the success in the future as well, inshallah. Thank you very much. May Allah bless you. Once more, we apologize greatly for the audio quality, and we do promise that the next one is super awesome, so please do watch out for that one. As always, thank you for tuning in. We look forward to your thoughts and feedback, and hopefully some suggestions for our next topics. You can do so by emailing us on editor at themuslimvibe.com. Don't forget to connect on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and of course, subscribing to our podcast. Until next time, Salaamu Alaikum.